If you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Daniel chapter 9, we are continuing on in our series in Daniel on living as exiles, and we're in Daniel 9 today. Just a few sermons left in this series as we uh, are on our way towards the end of the book. While there have been some stories that are very memorable in the book of Daniel, and there have been some that I've highlighted as being maybe the more important central pieces, one of the most unique parts of the book is what we cover today. And um, it's so unique and so different from anything that's come in any other part of the book that some people in a critical mind have questioned whether it belongs in it at all. And so it is unique to Daniel to speak this way, what we'll see this morning. Daniel chapter 9. The title of this message is Plead the Mercy. This is a strange way of talking, but if you think about the amendments to the Constitution, if I was to have an opportunity to say some criminating thing about myself, if I was in a court of law, I could plead the fifth. It's sort of a gracious out to not incriminate myself. That's the way I'm thinking about it this morning, is to plead the mercy today. If you look up on your screen, though, there's a picture that I want to refresh our memory of. Now, no one knows exactly what this artifact looks like, but this is an artist's um, recollection and imaginative portrayal of what is described in, um, in the book of Exodus, of the, the latter portions of Exodus, Exodus 35 through 40 describe the construction of the tabernacle and the furniture that are placed in the tabernacle. And one of them is on your screen. This is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol that signified the presence of God with his people. And the Ark was constructed out of acacia wood and then overlaid with gold. And it is supposed to have ringlets on the side where no one would touch this artifact except to touch the poles that went through the ringlets that would allow people at four different corners to lift it up and to carry it. And this is how the priest would move this ark from place to place. Once a year, the high priest would come in on the Day of Atonement, known as Yom Kippur, and would sacrifice a lamb for the sins of the people. It's this same festival feast that we get the notion of a scapegoat from because There were two parts to this Day of Atonement. One was the sprinkling of the blood on the altar, but what is known as the Ark, and then also the praying of the sins onto the goat that was released into the wilderness. And so the goat takes away the sins of the people, and that he is the scapegoat, so to speak. That's where the the notion comes from. But I don't want to highlight that part, part of it, but it's the other part the pure spotless lamb, that the high priest would place and sprinkle the blood, and he would do it right there on the screen between the cherubim. He would place it there on what is known as the mercy seat. Now, in the New Testament, this is something, an important thing, that when we went through the book of Romans, Paul picks this up. 
And uh, it's really sort of a debate among scholars over how this word in Romans chapter 3 is supposed to be translated. But some people will say that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And that's a fancy theological word that means he was a substitute. Meaning that he was substituted to pay the penalty of death for the sins of all those who are in him. But another way of understanding it was not that he was the act of propitiation, but he, he's literally the mercy seat. He literally is the place where the penalty was paid. He literally is the place where the blood was shed. He literally is the place where I find forgiveness. Not just the method that it, it takes place in, but the place where I reside makes the mercy all that more personal. As we come to Daniel, we see that Daniel has an understanding of mercy in this way. I want to read our text this morning. But before we get to it, I want to, in a way, plead the mercy over us. Father, we come to you right now and ask for your grace to illumine our hearts and minds, to show us the path of turning toward you. And it is only because of your loving kindness that we even have the opportunity for repentance. And so right now, as the people of the covenant, as people who, who have an opportunity with relationship to you, who can draw near to you based on what your son has accomplished we want to exercise that mercy and grace this morning. And we pray that you would help us up here as you help our kids and the little ones downstairs to be transformed by the renewing of our minds to know you and love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord, given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. And we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because you have sinned, or we have sinned against you. Lord, our God, is, you are merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. And all Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and 
sworn judgments written by, in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses that all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything that he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. We have sinned. We have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because you're of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will put to death and will have nothing, or will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. And this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. The word that was given to Daniel for our benefit. Now this vision by Daniel, after his long prayer, comes at the end of his ministry as a prophet. It says it comes in the first reign of Darius. 
It's likely close in time frame, maybe even the same year, maybe a few months away from Daniel having his episode at the lion's den. That's right around this time that this dream happened, sorry, this vision. It's approximately 539 B.C., just three years before the Persian king Cyrus will allow the people of Judah to return home. In the sense of, of God's story, the theology that's told throughout the Bible, this is a very classic repetition of something we hear earlier in the Bible, especially what Daniel prays. It's what we call um, Deuteronomic theology, and in that word you hear the name Deuteronomy. There are people out there, scholars, higher critical scholars of the Bible, that, that don't believe that the Word of God is inspired, and they don't believe that there are 40-plus different authors that write the Bible. They think that there are far fewer. See, there's a, a particular theology that's here in this prayer that's very common in practically the entire Old Testament from Deuteronomy all the way to the end. It's just not present in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, or Numbers. But the, the, the notion, the, the truth that I believe Moses portrays in Deuteronomy is not, not written by some person that writes most of the Old Testament, but rather was picked up by other authors as they see this truth applying in their own context. People like Jeremiah and David and Nehemiah and hear Daniel reiterate this understanding. And the basic understanding is this. Moses told the people of Israel, the new generation, once they went into the land, that if according to the Mosaic covenant, if they obeyed God, they would be blessed. If they disobeyed God, they would be cursed. And that is the covenant understanding that leads Judah into the exile. Daniel understands this. And Daniel further is not just understanding or thinking about Moses. It says in our text, he literally is reading Jeremiah. He's reading Jeremiah and thinking about what Moses said, and we'll see in a, a bit what Solomon said. And Daniel has been using Jeremiah's writings as a blueprint. We've seen throughout Dan, the whole book that he's been using Jeremiah as a blueprint for how to live in exile. And here's no different. Now you think about Daniel and his life. He's, he's been in exile for a long time. And he's seen that it says in, in the Old Testament, particularly in Deuteronomy 28, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. And then it says Moses seems to see, foresee a time when Israel would have to leave their land, that they would actually lose all their blessings. But then it says in Deuteronomy 30, that they would come back. Daniel's thinking about this. And then Jeremiah gets more specific. It actually says that it would last 70 years, and then they would get to come home. Well, it would, the, the inaugural or the, the initiation of that return would start with Babylon falling. So Daniel's witnessing all of these events in his life in real time. He's seeing that he has been ministering and, and interceding for his people as a, as a wise man in Babylon for years, and now Babylon's not here anymore. Persia's here. And so what does he do? Well, he opens up his scriptures, opens up the scrolls, and he's trying to figure out what's going on. And so he's reading Jeremiah. 
And what does it do? It drives him to prayer. And that's where we find him here. He sees a rebellion-triggered exile that has put him and the rest of his people in a position, a precarious one. But he sees that God's people can have a merciful restoration from the covenant. So as we enter the chapter, we find Daniel under the rule of Medes and Persians. And and this vision likely happens really close to him developing that relationship with Darius the Mede. But as a faithful exile, Daniel's searching the scriptures. He's trying to figure out how to be faithful in the context that he lives. And he's reading Jeremiah. And most likely we think that he's reading Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29. And so Jeremiah is this dear author to Daniel, likely a man he's never met. And what Daniel finds here is something that helps him. He finds in the word of God a prompting that directs him to pray. The scriptures written through Jeremiah prepare Daniel to know how and what to pray in his own context, in his own situation. Jeremiah's message connects the core gospel of the whole Bible and then provokes Daniel to go to prayer. And what we said is he's reading 25 and and Jeremiah 29, although those chapter divisions weren't there in those days. He's just reading through the whole book of Jeremiah and, and he finds these promises of return, promises that the people would get to go back. He's just witnessed Babylon dissolve, and now he thinks it might be happening right in my day. And what does he do? I think his mind gravitates towards, why did this all happen in the first place? Yes, there were political maneuvers and things. Hezekiah made the mistake of of showing the treasury of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar said, well, that's a place I've got to hit up when I want to conquer the world. And so that's what he does. He comes back the next time he does, and he deports 10,000 people, including Daniel. And then he comes and he sieges the whole city some, um, give or take, eight or nine years later and raises the whole thing to the ground. There are political things that that cause the whole chain of events to be set in motion, but Daniel sees another cause. It's a root cause. It's a heart issue. And that's what Daniel prays to address here. He understands the covenant as being the key thing here. The people of God were in a relationship that was both personal and formal with God, and they broke the terms of that relationship. They disobeyed God. And as we read the book of Isaiah, we find out they knew that they were disobeying God, and they hypocritically tried to address the issue by thinking that if they just kept going through the motions, things would would change. But they never did. So Daniel addresses God through the covenant. Here's one of the reasons why people don't think that Daniel 9 fits into the book, is because this is the only place in the entire book where anyone uses the covenant name for God. You know the covenant name for God from the Old Testament, right? It's whenever you find it in your Bible with the capital L-O-R-D. Behind that word that you have in English is is the name Yahweh or Jehovah. 
That's his personal name. That's the name that he, he allows people to know who are in relationship with him. The people who want to know him by his loving kindness, by his hesed, his, his covenant faithfulness. Those who get that faithfulness get to know Yahweh. And Daniel appeals to him in that sense here. Daniel's focusing on what God has promised, both formally and relationally, as part of that covenant, and he's relying on those promises as he asks Yahweh to forgive and restore. Before he prays, it says that he puts on sackcloth and ashes, which tells us that the type of prayer here is not a, it's not, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. It's, it's not one of these sort of repetitious ones, and it's not one that is... Um, it feels good. It's one of mourning and one of grief. The ritual part of it is that Hebrews at this day, the ancient people, would put on sackcloth and cover themselves in ashes to demonstrate their grief and their mourning. Something that happened about their world is terribly not right. So Daniel here is penitent as he addresses God. Of all the things that he says and and his posture as he does it, they are directed through the promises of God. Because Daniel, I, I have to think throughout his life, has grown in the grace and knowledge of God. As Peter says that exiles can. Although Peter says that you can grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in regard to the covenant that the Lord had with his people, Israel, through Moses, back in Exodus and Deuteronomy, the people are in exile because they broke that covenant. Deuteronomy specifically said that if they obeyed God, they would receive blessing, and if they disobeyed, they would receive cursing. And so disobedience or sin is the cause of the exile. Specifically, we know that they were in 70 years of exile because they failed to let the land rest for 70 years. That's why God chose that number. For 490 years, they were supposed to, every seventh year, allow the land to rest. Their land was one of the greatest blessings that God gave them, but yet they chose to abuse that blessing. And God said, well, I need to get your hearts right. And so I'm going to put you in exile, and I'm going to let my land rest for 70 years. And it is that disobedience that causes them to go into exile, the real reason, the real refusal. See, that's what Daniel's thinking about. He's thinking about, yes, the promise says we get to go home, but the real issue that put us in this position, has that been dealt with? The real issue that caused me to experience this pain and grief and my ancestors experience all of this mourning and grief, has that actually been dealt with? Because if we go home and that isn't dealt with, it's not going to really matter. Someone has to deal with the heart issue. That's what he seeks God for here. Daniel sees a clear contrast between his and the people's sin and God's mercy. That's the core of things here. In Daniel, he sees the root of the issue and he prays accordingly for God's people and for himself. Now, he, he painfully lays out the ways that God's people rebelled. He says, each of us have rebelled against God in like 
likely different yet similar ways. He says we break the commandments. We live according to our own code instead of living according to God's code. We rationalize our behavior, even the outcomes of our behavior, that cause destruction in us and those around us. It's like, like I see things happening, but nah, they're not because I'm so far from you, God. And yeah, I, I, I know that these are consequences that you said come from drifting away from you, but maybe they're just, that's, that's life, you know? Sometimes we drift. Some, sometimes we're, no, we're not on speaking terms. Sometimes God and I, we're, we're not so good. And that's just the way things go. Daniel sees, no, no, that's, that's not an excuse. That does happen, but that's not the, what it's meant to be. And so if I'm complacent and rationalize and, and even apathetic about that type of life, then I can expect some pain in the process. Sometimes it even gets so bad that, that, that I drift so far away from God that then I blame him for the things that I've caused in my life. Or I blame somebody else for the calamity that comes on us. That's what Israel did. That's what Judah did. That's what I've done. But Daniel appeals the mercy and the forgiveness of God for his people and for himself despite all of these unfortunate realities. Further, he moves and starts talking about God's judgment. He gets even more specific for Israel in demonstrating there's a clear connection between their present suffering and their past sin. This is something I think that I need to recognize and we need to recognize more often than we do in our lives that will show us, I'll show you what I mean mean in a moment here. The, The Old Testament is full of examples and connections between sin and consequences between the the rebellion that leads towards judgment. This happened over and over again. We we know that consequences are inevitable if we're reading the scriptures, yet we rationalize it. Now, perhaps Israel grew presumptuous. I'll give them this. They were involved in this rebellion for a long time. Maybe they thought that judgment never actually would come. I mean, it's something about getting involved in cycles of sin in your life and you're doing things that you know you're not supposed to do, yet God's loving kindness withholds the consequences. And then we get even more complacent sometimes. We think, you know, I'm never actually going to have to pay the Pied Piper here. I'm never actually going to have to cash in on what I've earned. But that's not what Scripture says. It says you eventually will. There eventually will be consequences. Presumption is a dangerous thing. And the guard against it is to remember not just the promises for good that God gives, but also the promises for ill. Not just the ones that comfort us, but also the ones that warn us not to choose our selfishness over him and ignore his instructions. So Israel's presumption was that if they had the temple, this is their big presumption, that if they had the temple, then they had God's presence. And if they had God's presence, then they had his blessings. That's what the ark signified. That's the whole point. As long as they had the ark, they were good. They, they treated it like a totem. As long as it was there, 
it, everything was good. And then when they lost it, they recognized that they needed to repent. But here's the thing. When they lost the temple and the ark during the exile, there was no mistaking that they had lost God's favor. Daniel has experienced the consequence of sin in his life firsthand. He's reflecting on it. He doesn't want the people to continue. He wants them to truly repent of the cycle. And so he moves through the judgment of God and he highlights how the promises, the, uh, the commandments of Moses had been broken. Daniel's not just praying for himself, though. He's, he speaks with solidarity as a representative for his people. He appeals to God on behalf of the people. He offers intercession the same way that Jesus today offers intercession for us. He appeals to what he has seen God do in the past, in the Exodus redemption, and he prays that God would do an even greater second Exodus of bringing his people back into the land. That's what he sees the return from the exile to be. Now, I think we have to be careful at this point ourselves not to make the mistake of seeing that God's restoration of his people comes simply because they confess. It's true that confession is something we're encouraged to do. But here's the problem. So there's this verse that I love in the New Testament. It's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a beautiful verse. But as I was growing up in the church, I came to understand that verse as the great eraser. I can do whatever I wanted. I can get away with anything. I just had to confess. And so... I could be brutally honest with God. I knew he saw what I was doing anyway. Yep, screwed up again. Wanted to let you know that. I know you know that, but I wanted to let you know that I did that. It's a good thing you forgive. And then we move on. Is that what that verse is talking about? Yes, I literally confessed, but is that what confession is meant to be? See, I understood that forgiveness came about because I went through the motion of confession. Forgiveness doesn't actually have anything to do with me. See, I had a doubly um, bad understanding of the verse is that I thought that God wouldn't forgive until I confessed. And that's why people were like, hey, you got to get right with God. You need to go forward. They're doing an altar call after church. You better get your butt up there and get on your knees and confess your sins. Otherwise, you're not going to be forgiven. That's not what the verse is meaning either. Forgiveness has nothing to do with me. True restoration does. I have to be participant in that. The confession is me understanding, if it's done right, that it's all by mercy and grace. And that my confession is the acknowledgement that I don't want to live in rebellion anymore. But the way I used that for so long was really me just sort of, well, it's how I imagine my Catholic friends going to confession and talking to the priest. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been a 
couple of months since my last confession, and I've done a whole load of crap since then. Because you can say anything in confession you want. You can, use, you can talk any way you want there. It's just between you and the priest, right? You could talk any way you want to God, too, but I have a feeling that if you recognize who you're talking to, you're going to be a little more penitent a little more of a realization that this is a holy God that out of love has come and wants to know and grow in relationship with me and has gone to great lengths to offer me his mercy and restoration. Daniel has this understanding of God. He appeals to what he's seen God in the past, And the true reason for God's renewal is God's grace. He offers confession and intercession for himself and the people, and then he pleads for God to restore. This is is all true. But Daniel knows that people are still sinful, and the real reason that God will heal them and restore them is not because of any inherent virtue that they have, or even their attempt to make things right in confessing. It's because of his own righteousness. That's what it says here in verse 16 and then down in verse 18. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, give ear, open your eyes and see the desolation. We do not make requests because of we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. While it's true that God forgives and that confession is the first step in that process, God does not begin to restore because I confess. He forgives because he is righteous. So God's own reputation is really what's at stake here. I love what what Daniel does. Daniel prays the same way that Jesus prays in the garden before he goes to the cross. Daniel prays the same way that, that Moses prays during the episode with the golden calf. Think about this for a second. If you remember the story of the golden calf, we'll go chronological order. Moses goes up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he gets the law. And the people think he's not coming back down. And what do they do? They replace him. They build a golden calf. They melt, Aaron melts down all of the artifacts they brought out of Egypt, and they make this idol, this representative that's supposed to be now the new go-between between them and God. Moses comes down, he's furious. What does God say? God says to Moses, you know what, Moses? I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to start over with you. And Moses all of a sudden is not angry anymore and realizes, oh, okay, I've got to do something. And what does he do? He prays. And he prays to God, God, what would people think of you? What would the, you are known as gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love. What would people think about you if you acted that way? And God says, I was just waiting for you to say that, Moses. I'm going to forgive them but I want you to understand you have no reason to be angry 
because you're just as rebellious as they are. I'm the one who has cause to be angry, yet I'm going to respond to them in love. Daniel here understands the same thing. He responds by praying and appealing not to God's um, covenant as in he's bound to do things, but he appeals to God's reputation. That's what Moses appeals to. That's what Daniel appeals to and says, based on your reputation, I don't do it because you have to forgive me. I don't, I don't pray this way because you have to restore us. I pray this way because your reputation is that you are a God that does stuff like this. That's how you've made yourself known to me. And that's the part of you that you asked me to trust in, so I'm trusting it. Then we get to Jesus in the garden. Jesus says, not my will, but thine be done. I'm going to the cross, not because I want to particularly, but for your glory, Father. I do this because that's your reputation. You are a God that does stuff like this. All of these people appeal to it. And then comes a promise. Now, a promise that, albeit most people spend most of their time on, and I'm not this morning, this vision of the 70 weeks. I've told you as we've gone through Daniel that I, I find little comfort in trying to nail down certain numbers in this book because everybody's got an opinion on what these numbers mean. And unfortunately, Daniel gets a little bit of information here that yes, the exile is coming to an end, but it's not really going to end the way you thought it was. It's not this cut and dried, clean return. It's going to extend a bit of time. When you're talking about full restoration of God with his people, kumbaya, sort of we're in perfect communion, that's not going to happen right away. He talks about 77s. It's another 490 years. And when that starts and when it ends, I'm not sure. There are some people that say that those 77s are finished um, by the time that, that uh, just after Jesus left the earth and, and Rome comes in to destroy Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD. And then there are others who believe that all these sevens have taken place except for one, and then that's going to happen in the Great Tribulation at the end of days. And i got to confess personally, I don't know. I don't think it makes a bit of difference for how I live today. I don't think it matters one bit to me. I don't think that Daniel understood it either. But some want to spend a good amount of time on it, and that's fine. To understand the scriptures, to delve deep, to, to try to understand and, and ascertain what God is communicating. But what I do know from this is that God is gracious. He sends Gabriel, who always has good news with him. Gabriel's got the best of news to communicate. He gets to tell Mary and Joseph they're having a baby. That Gabriel's always the bearer of good news. And so, whether he's an archangel or not, or where he sits in the Lord of Hosts army, I'm not really sure, but here he is with this wonderful news, and he comes to, comes to Daniel and instructs him in it. I've come to give you insight and understanding. The reason why 
I've come is because you prayed. And that's a wonderful thought to think that somehow something that I do, that I can do just along with Daniel, can somehow interject into heavenly places that God would move, that the, that the hand of God would be moved somehow by the prayers of his people. Gabriel says that the end of the 70-year exile is part of that process of these 77s until a full restoration will come. Now, it seems that he interprets the sevens as like seven years, and so it's 490 years, and, and I, I don't want to make the mistake of being too dogmatic in apocalyptic literature, and, and, and I, so I hold these numbers loosely. What I do see here is verse 24 is particularly important. There are six things that are listed in this verse. And all six of them together are a complete answer to the prayer that Daniel gave. Gabriel mentions six things that will occur before these 77s are completed. The finishing of transgression, the ending of sin, atonement of the wicked, bringing in of the everlasting righteousness, the sealing up of the vision and the prophecy, and the anointing of the most holy. All together would be an answer to what Daniel prayed. But Gabriel says the final fulfillment is pushed off to the future, almost as if Daniel wasn't meant to know the specifics, but should know that the Lord has specific fulfillments in mind that would meet God's people's need for mercy, both now and in the future. As we come to, uh, towards the end here, the setting of this vision is repentance, renewal, and restoration. Daniel sees that the, that the Babylon was an instrument of God, but the true trigger was the people's sin. That's what set things in motion. And so he sees the kindness of God leading the people back towards repentance. For all people, including Daniel, no response of repentance is, is truly enough to pay the penalty of sin. Something else has to be the, the, the penalty paid. And that's what's seen in, in Jesus himself. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant, the one who was cursed for our transgressions and achieved righteous, righteousness for all. See, Jesus brought all of creation into reconciliation through himself. He was the obedient son, where Israel were disobedient sons and daughters. He, in direct contrast, was obedient to the point of death. He took the curse of exile to its fullness, being separated from his father. Far greater than any exile Israel ever experienced. And he is the one that we place our faith in to be justified. He is the place where mercy was applied. And so we plead this mercy of God daily to seek our own restoration in every area of our lives. It's a work that's born of God's loyal love and it's chiefly displayed in Jesus himself. And so we plead the mercy of God every day for true repentance, renewal, and restoration. Three things in closing this morning. The first is, I think I can hear the voice of God calling us to repentance from rebellion. 
What I love that Daniel displays for us, and you see these in your bulletin, there's some um, things to fill in if you care to. Jesus himself reiterated much the same message. In Mark 1, 15, Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. All those who believe in me, believe and repent. I love that Daniel gets set in motion of how to pray and what to pray because he reads the scriptures. There are times where I don't know how to pray. But it's reading through the scriptures that helps me know how I should He's motivated to know specifically how to pray the best for the situation at hand because he's just reading his Bible. He gets directed that way. And so I can hear the voice of God through his word calling me and us to repentance. And when I do, I can appeal to God's loving kindness and his mercy to turn away from that rebellion. See, it is his loving kindness that leads us towards repentance, But what I never can forget is what Paul says in Romans 5, verse 8, where it says, While I was still a sinner, before I ever had any inclination to turn towards him, that's when he sent his son. That he always is the initiator of the repentance. He is always the initiator of the work. He is the one who made the way for me before I ever knew that I needed the way. That's the gospel that Daniel is appealing to here. And lastly this morning. Restoration is ultimately a matter of being wholly reconciled to our loving God through Christ. It's never me transforming myself. It's the work of Christ in me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is an important passage I want to read as we close. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about Jesus' ministry of reconciliation, which we have. But it says this, And he, speaking of Jesus, died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one according to a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's ultimately a matter of what Christ did and what he is continuing to do. But Paul encourages the readers in Corinth, to be reconciled to God. That's what he's talking about, repentance there. I have to engage with what is made available. And in that, he will wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, transform me into holiness by his son.
Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for this reminder of your gospel story and how repentance and renewal and restoration are a work that you give through your love and based on your mercy, not based on anything that I do, but yet you're asking me to experience the change that you make possible by engaging the grace that you make possible. So this morning and every day, Lord, I really should not take for granted your mercy. And I can plead it as part of my engagement with you in prayer. Help me to understand the great cost and never believe that your grace is cheap. It's a costly thing that proves how much you love us. And we love you in return in Jesus' name. Amen.